You're listening to a Dwell Community Church production. If you'd like to check out more resources, visit dwellcc.org. This book is called First Peter, and it's because it was written by a guy named Peter. It's the first letter that he wrote that we have in our Bibles. As you can see in the very opening line of this book, his name, he calls himself Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Peter, a little bit of background on him. If you've read any of the Gospels, the accounts of Jesus' life in the New Testament or the book of Acts, Peter shows up quite a bit. You know, Peter knew Jesus better than almost anyone. You know, Peter was picked by Jesus to be one of the 12 disciples, one of the guys that followed him around. He picked Peter very early in his ministry. And then he picked Peter to be among those 12, among this inner circle of three that had special access to him, that got to do special things with Jesus that the other apostles didn't. And then he picked Peter to be the leader of the apostles, kind of a first among equals. And so as a result, we see Peter playing a major role, not just in the Gospels, but also in the book of Acts and in these, these historical accounts of the early church. So um, this, is, this is one of the letters that he wrote. It's interesting, though, if you read about Peter, he's kind of a surprising choice for this major role. From the very beginning, we see he shows up as a pretty unstable guy, um, kind of a flighty guy. And, you know, I, I'm sure some of us can relate to that. I can definitely relate to that. Um, Peter was the kind of guy that was always saying too much, always saying the wrong thing. He's the kind of guy that would speak first and think later, always putting his foot in his mouth, always embarrassing himself. I can definitely relate to that. Peter also is a guy that had some pretty public failures. Um, We see him letting Jesus down multiple times on the final night before Jesus was crucified, as well as other times in the New Testament. And, you know, I'm not sure there's anybody that has more failures recorded than Jesus, sorry, than Peter in the Bible. And uh, I kind of feel that sometimes that way as well. It's like, does anyone fail more publicly and more often than me? Uh, Maybe you can relate to that as well. So I think Peter's a guy some of us can relate to. But what's so cool about that is I think it's really encouraging that people like him can be picked to do great things for God. And as a result of this suffering, of his failures that, that Peter went through, um, we see him speak with a conviction, with compassion, with a gratitude that can only come from somebody that has really failed, as Peter is going to talk about here tonight. He's writing from Rome in the early 60s AD. This would have been, Emperor Nero would have been Caesar at this point. But, um, you know, this would have been probably 63 or 64, because Paul was there till 62. Peter doesn't mention him. This would have been before the real big persecution broke out at the hands of Emperor Nero. Um, But he was writing to suffering Christians in present-day Turkey. This would be writing to churches and Christian communities to the east of where he was writing from. You know, even though there wasn't necessarily an empire-wide program of persecution going right now, if you've read the book of Acts, you know, uh, regardless of what the government policy is, local attacks on Christians could spring up at any time, and we see those all over the place. And so, you know, this isn't the major persecution that would later claim the life of Peter and Paul and a lot of other Christians in and around Rome, but this was, um, there was still a lot of suffering going on here. And Peter is writing to these Christians to try to give them God's perspective on this, this present life. He writes to those who reside as aliens, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Again, like I said, those are just, it's kind of just modern day Turkey is where these different regions are. And he says, these are aliens. He calls, them al- he calls them scattered aliens. And, you know, this sounds kind of weird at first. He's referring to Christians as aliens and, you know, makes conjures up images of like, yeah, weirdo. 
or aliens, which would actually be kind of cool. But um, I think a better word for this uh, would be like, like pilgrims, um, you know, backpackers, travelers, journey. You know, it's like the, the Christian is there. We've got our stuff on our back. We're living simply. We're packing light. We're not getting too attached to this world. Or, you know, you see this group here. They're just traveling. They're on a cool adventure together. This isn't, this isn't their home. This isn't where they live. They're on a journey. They're staying in this place for a little while, then they're going to stay that place for a little while. And that, that's the way it is. Peter, this is the picture that, that Peter is painting of the Christian. You know, Jesus said, I'm out of this world. And so Christians, we, we should stand out in a good way, not in a weird way. And we'll talk about that next week. This is a theme Peter's going to revisit a few times in this book. But he's saying, you guys, you guys are suffering. And Jesus told us this would happen. He said, look, if you were of this world, the world would accept you and would embrace you and pat you on the back, but you're not of this world. And if they persecuted and killed me, Jesus said, what are they going to do to you? So we shouldn't be surprised by this. He kept warning his disciples about this, and he's always warning us, and then we're always surprised when it happens to us. Um, I think about camping. You know, this, um, I really love camping, all right? This is uh, a picture from one of our campsites last summer when we a group of people, we loaded up our tents and our sleeping bags and our cooking gear, and we threw it all on a plane, and we flew out to Colorado, and we camped. And it was awesome. You know, you're in nature. You're sleeping out under the stars. You're seeing some of the most beautiful places in the world. You're doing some awesome hikes. But it wasn't all rosy. It wasn't all easy. You know, a few days into that trip, I started getting blisters on my feet from the hikes that we were doing. We got rained on multiple times. We kept setting up our tent right in the place that all the water in the campground would pool. And so literally in a pond is where my tent would end up. Um, we actually got hailed on twice. You know, I remember sitting in my tent looking at these hail balls. It was a river of hail balls at a certain point, just sitting there in my vestibule. And I was just like, this is not the way it's supposed to be. You don't see this in the camping advertisements. <laughs> yeah, you know, we... You re we reach that point in, that you get to in every camping trip with the cooler. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> Where the ice is melted and um, you have this sort of like meat-flavored water. <laughs> and you're kind of reaching your hand down in there bobbing for that pack of brats that you know is there. You're hitting like a weird like plastic Ziploc baggie that had something in it at one point. <laughs> And, you know, as I was lying there in my tent in 35-degree weather, slightly damp tent, one of the last nights there, I just thought to myself, you know, I love camping, but I also love going home. <laughs> and pretty soon, I'm going home. And I, I was not confused in the slightest that this was my home. All right, you know, I'm sleeping in a tent. I'm, I'm using the restroom in that structure kind of in the background there with the smokestack coming up out of it for ventilation. It's... I'm just thinking at home, I've got a fridge with no meat water. <laughs> I've got a restroom with a toilet that flushes. I've got air conditioning and heat, memory foam. This is, this is cool, but, but this is not the way it's supposed to be. And, and, and for the Christian, you know, we're kind of like campers. It's like we're enjoying this temporary time where we're staying somewhere that is not our home, Peter says. You know, we're, we're scattered pilgrims. Scattered travelers. But, you know, when we're looking around at this life and we feel the blisters and we feel the cold and we are kind of grabbing for food in the middle of the meat water and, 
you know, we're thinking to ourselves, this is not the way it's supposed to be. There's a reason for that. This is not your home. You are homesick for a place you've never been if you're a Christian. There is a home waiting for you that any picture you have of home here in this life, it, it, it's only a pointer to that longing for home. And that is a home that will be the home we've always been longing for. And so we don't, we don't expect too much out of this life. We can enjoy this life tremendously. There's a lot of enjoyment to be had here in this life. But at the same time, you know, and, it, and it's also not like we can't own things or own a house or stay somewhere for a while in this world, but we don't want to get too attached. And we always want to be looking ahead to that future home that is going to be here so soon. And so Peter says, you guys are scattered pilgrims, you're backpackers, you're sojourners. And he says, you're chosen. So we're chosen scattered pilgrims. We've been picked. So who, what does this mean? Who chose me? What did I get picked for? Well, he tells us. He says, you're chosen. Well, you're chosen by God. And you're chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Now, this is, we're not going to impact the whole theological debate here. Christians have been debating about this one for a while. How does it work? All this stuff. But what Scripture tells us is that God has foreknowledge. He knows the future somehow. We don't know how it works. We don't, we're not God, so we couldn't possibly understand that. But he says he has foreknowledge. It also says he picks people, and he picks people according to his foreknowledge. This is how this works. Chosen according to foreknowledge. He, he knows you before you were ever born. He knows all the decisions you will make. He knows how your life will pan out. And then certain people he picks based on what he sees. And it doesn't mean that we don't have free will, but what it does mean is that he knows what choices we'll make. We see the same thing with a concept that's very similar called predestination, where it's like the destiny is set ahead of time. It says, those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. So once again, we see, um, sorry, we see this, this chosenness or predestination based on foreknowledge. And so, you know, it's almost like, you know, when it comes to salvation, it's almost as though you're there and you're in the water and you're floundering and you're splashing around. And it's, it's hopeless for you. And God tosses you a life preserver. He tosses one in there and he tosses one to everybody. God knows whether you're going to grab onto that. But you still have to grab onto it. And, you know, based on God's foreknowledge of what you're going to do with his offer, you know, he makes other plans for your life. He, he, he crafts this really cool plan for your life, things that you can do as part of his rescue plan. God is on a rescue plan to rescue a dying world. And so this is, what, this is why Jesus Christ came. He came, he died on the cross for our sins so that you could be rescued, so that he could throw you that life preserver and give you the opportunity to grab on. Some of us here, maybe we've never grabbed on. Tonight would be a pretty good night to do that. The offer is there. It's floating right there. You have to reach out and grab it, though. God is not going to force you into the boat. He's not going to force you to receive his offer. He wants you to freely choose it. And so we see God choosing people, choosing Christians as scattered pilgrims based on his foreknowledge. He also says we're chosen by the sanctifying work of the Spirit. That's another big you know, Bible word. To sanctify means to set something apart as different. It's related to the, a word, um, the word holy, which means also, also means different. And we're going we're gonna to talk a lot more about holiness and, and the different way to live. We'll talk about that next week in the, the second part of this chapter. But God's Holy Spirit, when we, the moment we grab onto that life preserver, the moment we come into that relationship with Christ, His Spirit comes and begins to live inside of us. 
He connects us to Christ forever. We can never be snatched away from his, from his grasp. Um, he starts to, to give us this, this happiness, this peace, this closeness with God. He starts to change our desires so we want to do the right thing. You know, some of us might be sitting here thinking, you know, I'd sort of like to try the God thing, but I just, I don't think I could do it. I don't think I could be good enough. I feel like all these people, they just, they're better people than me. Look, the reason you feel that way is probably because you have not experienced the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit lives inside of you and starts changing your desires, you will find yourself becoming a different person because you want to. He would teach you to love God, to love people, doing the right thing. So we're chosen according to God's foreknowledge, to receive his spirit who sets us apart, who does this work in our lives, who bears God's fruit. And he says we're chosen to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. Now, this obedience to Jesus Christ is probably refers to the one-time obedience of receiving Christ, of grabbing the life preserver. You know, Jesus himself said, this is the only work God wants from you, believe in the one he has sent. And Peter says, you should obey Jesus. Place your trust in Jesus. That is the point where we get sprinkled with his blood. This is like language from the Old Testament sacrifices where they would be sprinkled with the blood, and that's what would bring about forgiveness, symbolically. It was pointing ahead to Christ. And so we're chosen for these three things. And he says, may grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. Wouldn't that be nice to have peace and grace in the fullest measure? Grace, God's unmerited generosity. And then Peter just launches into this seven-verse sentence that we're going to spend the rest of our time here talking about. And he starts by saying, Blessed be or praise the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Just a, a shout of gratitude. Why? Because according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. And so he's praising God. He's thanking God for a couple of reasons. One is for God's great mercy. God didn't give us what we did deserve, which was eternal separation from him. Mercy is when, mercy's when you don't get what you deserve. You ever be pulled over, been pulled over by a cop and you know you were speeding, you know, through a school zone with construction and <laughs> you're like, this is going to be a $5,000 ticket. <laughs> and they let you off with a warning. You're like, whoo, that was mercy. I didn't get what I deserved. And that's, that's an exciting feeling. That's how Peter feels here. Well, God, God's mercy is so much greater than getting out of a speeding ticket. He says his, his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again. Now, born again, it's sort of unfortunate this term has become like a trite, weird, cheesy Christian phrase, overused. Um, you know, it's an idea that actually Jesus coined. It's a term that Jesus coined. He says in John 3, no one can enter this kingdom of God unless they're born again. And, you know, the guy Jesus is talking to does not understand what he's talking about. I mean, you think birth, you think, like, birth, right? And the guy he's talking to is like, uh, born again? My mom is not going to be real happy about that. She's like, 80? And Jesus is like, no, I'm not talking about a physical birth. I'm talking about a spiritual birth. That's what you need. And there are some similarities between the spiritual birth that Jesus promised and physical birth, and that's why he used that analogy. You know, Physical birth begins a new life. Um, you weren't, and then you were. And then there's life now, okay? Now, spiritual birth also begins a new life, but it begins a new spiritual life. This is a new beginning. You are a new creation. Like it says in 2 Corinthians 5, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. The old you, the old you is gone. You ever feel like, I just wish I could get a fresh start? 
I just wish I could get a clean slate. I feel like things have happened. Maybe it's choices I made. Maybe it's things that happened to me, usually a combination of both. And I just, things are so messed up. I, I just need, I need to just like, you know, I remember I used to just, the video game would be going so bad, I would just turn off the game system and turn it back on, right? And you're just like, let's just start over. Now, you can't usually do that in life. But with Christ, he says, this is the new beginning you've been longing for. And this is a new beginning that is so awesome and is never going to end. And it's going to go on for all of eternity. And it's only going to get better and better and better. You know, another similarity is that being born physically requires outside intervention. It's not something you can do to yourself. You don't just decide, I'm going to start to exist. You know, when you were physically born, you were kind of, that was kind of dependent upon the actions of other people, right? You know, it's like, one minute you'd not, and the next minute you exist. And then, you know, a little time passes, and then all of a sudden, boom, you're born. Spiritual births like that, too. You know, we, we can grab the life preserver, but we can't make ourselves born spiritually. That is something, like he says here, it's according to God's great mercy that he has caused us to be born again. We do a very small part. We put our trust in Christ. He does the hard part. He's the one that makes us new, a new creation, a new birth, a new beginning. And so Peter says, we're born again. We got a fresh start. God did it. This is the new beginning. This is never going to end. This is awesome. The old is gone. The new has come. And we've been born again to something really cool. He says, to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Yes, because Jesus died and rose again, we know that one day we, even though we die physically, we will rise again. We will actually be given a new body, just like he was given a new resurrection body. And you know, this is in real contrast with the dead hope that we see so often. You know, the philosophers in the day of Peter, like Sophocles, he wrote, it's best not to be born at all, and the second best is to die at birth. That's a pretty depressing philosophy. Philosophers tend to be like this, though, don't they, right? <laughs> Catullus, though the sun can set and rise again, once our brief light sets, there was but one ending night to be slept through. Yeah, I mean, that's, that is dead hope. That's no hope at all. Ernest Becker, in his Pulitzer Prize-winning book, The Denial of Death, he writes, the idea of death, the fear of it, haunts the human animal like nothing else. It is the mainspring of human activity, activity designed largely to avoid the fatality of death, to overcome it by denying in some way that death is the final destiny of man. Scripture says we live our lives in the fear of death, whether or not we're willing to admit to it or not. All culture, all man's creative life ways are in some basic part of them a fabricated protest against natural reality, a denial of the truth of the human condition, and an attempt to forget the pathetic creature that man is. A more recent book by these three authors, they study the research on death. And they said, you know, they'll go around and they'll ask people, are you afraid of death? And everybody's like, no. But then the studies that they've done show exactly the opposite. And they go into a lot of detail on it. But what they summarize, they say, the awareness that we humans will die has a profound and pervasive effect on our thoughts, feelings, and behaviors in almost every domain of life, whether we're conscious of it or not. That's that dead hope. That's that dread. They go on to say, 
there are more than 500 studies and counting. This is six years ago. This book came out. More than 500 studies and counting that reveal how people are affected by the terror, they say, of the knowledge of the inevitability of death. But Peter says, we can have a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You don't have to be afraid of death anymore. You don't have to keep living in denial about where am I going to go when I die. No, we can have a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And he says, praise God for that. And he says, we've been born again to obtain an inheritance. And he goes on to describe this inheritance. So, you know, we're, we're in the will, right? We are going to get something when we die, and that something is heaven. That something is eternal life with God. And Peter tells us four things about this inheritance. He says this inheritance is imperishable. It will never perish. It is undefiled, untainted by evil or anything. So, you know, these first two, imperishable. This is not going to die. This is not going to go away. This cannot perish. We're guaranteed that we will get this inheritance. It's also undefiled. It's not going to spoil. It's not going to be invaded by other foreign elements like some dairy product in your refrigerator. You know, it's like sour cream that's gone bad. You know, every experience with sour cream, it's like, you're like, oh, sour cream, that looks good. And then you open the lid and you're like, oh, defiled. <laughs> Our salvation is not going to be that way. It's not going to get defiled by anything. It's going to be as pure and as clean as it's ever been. He also says it will not fade away. It will not fade away. Yes, this, it's, not going to get, it's not going to lessen in its intensity, in its glory, in its awesomeness. You know, we're just used to things fading away. We're used to being let down by things. We're used to things of this world. But Jesus said, I'm not of this world, and I bring something better. You know, this is, this is like inflation. You know, if you, if you had like 1,000 bucks back in the year 1900, you were the richest person ever. You could buy like 10 houses with that. You know, now you, now you can barely get anything with a thousand, but you can't even buy like a crappy car for a thousand bucks. But it's because of inflation. It's taken what was once a fortune, what was once awesome, and it's made it virtually worthless compared to what it once was. Or um, I remember um, when I was 13 years old, I was visiting my cousin who lived in another state. And uh, for some reason, while I was like spending the week at his house, we decided to go through their deep freezer, all right? And we were looking down in there, and down at the bottom, we found this, this like package, and the label on it said, it was my parents' names, and it said uh, it was part of their wedding cake from 20 years ago, all right? <laughs> and I was like, wow, you know how sometimes at the wedding, you like take the little top off and eat it on your first anniversary, I guess? People used to do that. So I was like, whoa, this is so cool. My parents' wedding cake is 20 years old. I'm like, hey, mom and dad, we found your wedding cake. I'm going to bring it home when I come home. And they were like, no, Scott, that's okay. You can just eat it yourself. <laughs> I was like, why don't they want their wedding cake? And so we thought this thing out. And, you know, all it took was one bite to realize what happened to this thing in 20 years, even in the deep freeze, even in the bottom of the deep freeze, it was not good. It had faded away. And our salvation is not going to be like that. It's not going to be like we finally pull it out and it's like this 20-year-old freezer-burned wedding cake. No, this is it's just as awesome. It's not faded at all. And it's reserved in heaven for you. It's reserved. And so no one is, you're not going to lose your reservation. They're not going to cancel your reservation. Um, 
Man, I had an experience New Year's Eve slash morning this past year where um, I had found these really cheap flights on this really, really, really cheap discount airline. It was like 50 bucks nonstop round trip to Florida, right? So I'm like, yeah, what could go wrong? So <laughs> I booked the 6 a.m. flight on New Year's morning. <laughs> Not a real popular time. And, you know, it's, it's, it's New Year's Eve, the ball drops, I'm heading up to bed. I check my phone one last time, and a notification pops up that says, your 6 a.m. flight has been canceled. And I was like, what? So I called the company immediately, and I was like, what is going on? They're like, yeah, sorry, it's canceled. Well, I'm like, can I get on the next flight? And they're like, well, we actually canceled everything for the next couple of days because we're this super cheap discount airline, and you really have no other option besides us. And I was like, mmm. I was like, well, what can I do? And they're like, well, you could fly out of Indianapolis. <laughs> so I'm like texting everybody I know. Can you take me to Indianapolis in three hours at four in the morning? <laughs> and, um, you know, my friends are awesome. We found a ride. And I vowed never to fly that airline again. And then the next time I went to book a flight, I was like, they are pretty cheap. <laughs> but here's the thing. I still was terrified that I was going to get that same notification that my flight had been, my reservation had been canceled. And you're not going to have to worry about that with this right here because Jesus rose from the dead and he lives forever and he is our guarantee. He is our living hope. Imperishable, undefiled, will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you this inheritance. And I know a lot of things in your life have probably let you down. This is one thing you can trust in. God is the God of hope and he keeps his promises. But it's not just our inheritance that's protected. He says also you are protected by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So you're protected by the power of God. This is super cool. You know, there's... The salvation that you have is secure. I, I spent the first year and a half of my, my Christian walk not knowing this. I thought I could lose my salvation by sinning. I thought I could lose it by not being faithful enough, by not trying hard enough. I was a mess. It wasn't until a year, you know, I was constantly wondering, have I blown it for good? What does God think of me? I'm groveling. I'm trying to make it up to him. No, that was, I was wrong. Our salvation is secure. And that's why he says protected by the power of God through faith. You know, God, you know, it's like he's just got bodyguards all around you. He's got, you know, Navy SEALs armed with nukes surrounding you and protecting you. And you are protected by the power of God, because, because you trusted in Christ. That's all it took. You grabbed that life preserver. It's crucial to understand the security of your salvation. Imagine a kid that doesn't know if his parent loves him, doesn't know if he's going to get rejected by his parents. That's not a way to grow up. And it's not a good way to grow up spiritually, always wondering if your heavenly father loves you or if he's rejected you. It also goes directly against passages like this one right here. And he says, you're protected for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Yes, there's nothing that is standing between right now and the possibility of Jesus coming back. I mean, only, only God knows when he's sending the sun back. Only God knows when he's going to wrap up this present age. But it's coming, and Scripture says it's coming soon. And we need to always be ready because it could come at any time. Think about this question. If you knew Christ were coming back tomorrow... What would you do today? I mean, we, not, we might not make it through this teaching. You've got to let that thought sink in. We might not make it to tomorrow. 
Christ may come back. And if so, all the Christians are going with him. What would you do today if you knew today was the last day before Christ came back? And then a good follow-up question is, why not go ahead and do that thing? (laughs) Because he could come back. He could come back. we got to live in constant expectation of this. If you're not a Christian here, maybe it's time to grab that life preserver. Maybe it's time to receive Christ so you know you're going with him, so you know you have that living hope. could be one of the last Christians to receive Christ before the return of Christ. Wouldn't that be cool to be the last one? (laughs) You're like, man, you'd have some stories to tell when you got to heaven. A lot of people wanting to talk to you. Some people are like, but I don't want to wait. I don't like waiting for things, for this salvation. Why do I have to wait for it to be revealed? I want it now. Well, Peter's got some good news for you. You can have it now. You can experience it. It's it's not just a salvation that's revealed at the return of Christ and all of its glory. It's also one that gets revealed bit by bit in the lives of his followers. And that gets revealed... Peter's going to tell us, one of the primary ways is through suffering. It's as we suffer that God slowly but surely purifies us and brings out this salvation and uh, kind of clears the, the junk out of our lives and brings out the good stuff that he's put in there. And so he says, you know, in this you greatly rejoice, the fact that it's ready to be revealed. Even though now, for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed, by various trials. Yeah, various trials, you know. We experience various trials. His, his listeners are probably going through all kinds of stuff. You guys are probably going through all kinds of stuff. You know, there's physical ailments. Our bodies begin to break down. Our bodies get injured. I was talking to a guy last week who's on like his fifth ACL surgery. He's walking around on, on crutches yet again. It's like the body's breaking down. The guy's in his 20s, you know, and it's like, he knows he's got, he's got a long road ahead of him before he gets his new body, but he's looking forward to it. You know, some of you have already got some serious physical ailments, could be physical problems, could be mental disabilities, could be things you were born with, could be things developed later, but they just sort of make life harder. And it's easy to sit around feeling sorry for yourself and complaining about them. There's financial struggles. There's just that, that knot in your stomach about what, you know, am I going to overdraw my account? Is there some bill I haven't heard of? Is my car going to break down? What am I going to do now that I need a new laptop? There's painful situations with family or friends, and these can, can run the gamut. You know, sometimes our friends are suffering. Some of us may have, have had close, people close to us dying or have recently died. And that is so exhausting. That is so painful. Maybe our friends or family are going through hard things. Maybe there's hard things in our relationship with them where you just see this relationship, it's got problems and I don't know what to do about it. I don't know how to fix it. Weariness and busyness. There are seasons of life that are busier than others where we're tired, more tired than others. And uh, when you're in one of those, it sort of feels like it's never going to end. It's hard. It's real hard. Waiting on God. Sometimes the problem is not what's happening to us, but what's not happening to us. Like, when am I going to get married? When is this thing going to happen that I've been waiting so long for? Sometimes waiting is the hard thing. But, you know, how else can you learn patience other than by waiting? There's no magic wand of patience that God can wave over you. No, it's, it's you're denied the thing you really want, really bad, and then you have to go back to God's word. You have to go back to God. 
And God gives you strength to endure. And then you see him come through, and you're like, I'm so glad I had to wait. So Peter says, you greatly rejoice. How are we rejoicing in the midst of various trials? Well, he gives us a couple reasons. He says, for one, these trials are, it's just for now. For a little while, if necessary. Like, it's a real contrast with the, the inheritance he just talked about the last couple of verses, right? Imperishable, undefiled, will not fade away, reserved. This, he's like, oh, it's now, it's a little bit, it's, it's you know. We got to put our suffering into perspective. And no matter how bad it is in this life, it's so small compared with the good that is coming just around the corner. And so, you know, even if, you know, even the person trapped in the, you know, the collapsed mine shaft, if they can hear the rescuers coming, even if they know it's going to be a couple of days, they're like, I'm getting out. That makes the current suffering so much easier to deal with because, then, you know, it's going to be so short and the rescue is coming soon. Here's another reason. It's not just because we know the suffering is short, but because we know what God does in our life through it. He says in verse 7, God is, you know, you're distressed by these trials if necessary so that the proof or the genuineness of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Remember that salvation is ready to be revealed. He says, when, when it is revealed, you know, God is going to, he's going to reveal all the cool work he's done in your life. And there will be rewards for you, for your faithfulness to him, for the things he's done in you and through you. And so, you know, this is, um, this is the language of the gold refiner, the smelter. You know, here's a, here's a picture of molten gold being poured as part of the, the refining process. You know, refining gold is a lengthy, hot, grueling process. One metric ton of ore, gold ore, 2,200 pounds. You know how much actual gold that yields? You're never going to guess. It's 1.5 grams of gold. That's pretty hard to believe. No wonder gold is so expensive. A metric ton yields a gram and a half of gold? I've read estimates as high as almost five grams of gold. So to be fair, it might be triple that. Wow. It's ground to powder and then heated to approximately 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit. That is a hot, grueling process. Imagine how the gold must feel. It's like, come on, refiner, I thought you were good. I thought you wanted what was best for me, and here you're being ground to powder and heated to 2,000 degrees? You know, the master smelter knows just how hot to heat that fire, heat it to a certain temp, pull it out, take a look at it, put it back in, you can heat it hotter, you're pouring off the, the impurities, the gold sinks, the impurities rise to the top. That's right, you're pouring the impurities off the top, you're checking that to make sure there's no... There's no gold in there. You're going through this process of heat, cool, heat, pour, cool, heat, pour, cool. And they say that the, the refiner in ancient times, they, they could tell the gold was done when they could look over and they could see their face in it. And that's what God's doing in our lives. He's heating us. The fire is revealing the impurities. You can't see the impurities until it's heated and they separate. We see. We think we trust God completely. And then suffering comes in and we're like, getting pretty upset with God and the people around us, and we're getting impatient. 
It also purifies us. It's a chance to bring those out, to take those, those things and to hold them up to God and his word. God, wants, God is doing this in our lives. Grinding, heating, pulling out of the fire, putting back in. He is the master refiner. He knows just what you can handle. And he's doing something in your life that, that may feel pretty, pretty warm, pretty painful. But you've got to hang in in there and trust him that he knows what he's doing. Think about a Christian that doesn't suffer. What would that be like? It might be because they're at peace with the world system, with, with the system of values set up over and against God's values with God's enemy. But, you know, those people still suffer. They just have a different kind of suffering, the, the breakdown of relationships, the, um, the lack of peace, the lack of happiness, the addictions, the, the, the ways they deal with these problems in their lives. Christians who don't suffer, they really can't learn to depend on God. It's not until we push, we're pushed to the end of ourselves that we turn and out of our own strength. You know, I can kind of handle some suffering, but if I get a lot, I'm like throwing my hands up. I'm like, God, I can't do it. That's when I'm turning to him. I mean, would you prefer you never did that? That's not what I want in my heart of hearts even though I do complain when the suffering comes in, and I do feel sorry for myself at times. Christians who don't suffer, they tend to be shallow with easy answers. Everything just seems so simple. You know, WWJD, man. They got easy answers for everything. It's those who have suffered, those who have really been through things, that they see the nuances, that they see the different um, unexpected issues. They, they see, they know what it's like for the person who's suffering. They know how hard it is. They know the points where faith breaks down and how to actually answer the problems, how to actually encourage people. You know, if you don't suffer, you have low empathy and weak ministry skills. You don't really know how to help people. You know, when I've been through suffering, I can just realize, what were the things that helped me? What did God teach me through that? And then I have lessons that were forged in the fires of the refiner paid for with sweat and tears. And those are the kind of lessons that can actually, actually help people. You know what it feels like. It's not easy, glib, minimizing, but you can actually be there with somebody. You ever been suffering and you, just somebody is there with you and you feel like they climbed down into this hole with me and nobody has yet. That is so therapeutic, so healing. That's, that's, that was the life of Christ right there compassionate, right down in there with the, the lowly. That's what he wants you to be able to do. Don't you want that? I do. Finally, Christians who don't suffer can't handle suffering when it comes your way. You want to be soft? You want to be weak? You want to be always trying to steer clear of the suffering, always pulling that escape lever, always trying to numb myself? Or do you want to be able to be bold and weigh right in and take it like Christ did as our example? And then Peter says, finally, and though you've not seen him, you love him. And though you've not seen him, you love him. What a profound statement about a dead person, Jesus Christ. What a profound statement about the God of the universe. What religion could possibly engender love? And yet, we come to the Bible and Peter says, though you've not seen him, you love him. 
Here's another reason why suffering is worth it. It's not just that it's temporary. It's not just for what God does in our lives to purify us. It's because through suffering, that's where closeness with Christ is formed. That's where closeness with Christ is formed. It's in the desperate times. This was one of the first verses I ever read in the Bible. and was just like, I have to memorize this because it so described my experience. When I came to Christ, I was at one of the lowest points of my life. I was at my wit's end. I'd tried everything. I'd failed, and I was desperate, and that's when the love of God came flooding into my life, and I felt, I experienced his love and his happiness. Corey Tim Boom says, you don't know that Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. And this is a woman that went through Nazi concentration camps, among other things. Yeah, God has to bring us to a point where we've got no other ways to turn. And that's when that closeness with Jesus is formed. You know, this is the most painful times in my life are some of the sweetest times I've ever had with God because I was so desperate. I was running to him. He goes on, though you don't see him now, but you believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Again, I read this verse as a young believer, and I couldn't believe how much it described me. This happiness, it was hard to express. It was full of glory, and I I took it as God is glorified by this happiness because it's so different from how I was. And some of you here... Your spiritual life is half-hearted. And it's because this verse right here is not true of you. You're trying to do the right thing. You're trying to drum up the motivation. You just... But if this was really true, where though you've not seen him, you love him, and though you don't see him now but believe in him, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory... What a difference that would make in your life. How do you get that? You can't drum it up from within. No. You must look to Christ. Look to him. Get your eyes off yourself. Don't try to drum up love that's not there. Look to him. Tell him, I want this verse to be true of me, God. And do whatever it takes to make this true of me. Spend time in his word, looking at Jesus, looking at his love, looking at his sacrifice on the cross, looking at his tears for you. And you'll start to see those fires stoked. You'll start to see the fires burning in your heart, this love that will then be the engine for the other things in your your spiritual life. And he says, you're obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. We're getting it now. This salvation that's ready to be revealed, I'm gaining as much as I can right now in this life. And then it's going to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So what have we seen? 1 Peter chapter 1. Well, the world's passing away. And if, if you're not a Christian, that's really bad news for you. Because you can kind of make up hope, but this hope's limited to this life. It's dead hope. It's the kind of hope we're reading about, and you, you still, like it or not, you're going to live in fear of death. But if you're a Christian and you know this world is not your home, 
you're fine with that. And we say, come, Lord Jesus, as soon as possible. How about tonight? <laughs> the return of Christ could come at any minute. We need to live our lives like that's true. We need to rethink, what would I do differently if Christ was coming back tomorrow, next week, next month, next year? It doesn't mean I just you know, quit my job and you know, lie around looking at the heavens. <laughs> it doesn't mean no planning. That would be foolish, which is also bad and sinful. But Christ can come at any minute. We need to allow that to inform our lives. We need to let that sink in on a daily basis. What if today's the last day? We've seen God promises to work through suffering in your life to reveal himself to you and reveal himself through you. Like that gold becoming more and more pure with the impurities being filtered out of it. He wants, he wants to get you to the point where you can see his face in you, where you reflect his face to other people. He wants you to get to the point where you can say, I don't, I, although I don't see you, I love you. And I'm rejoicing with a joy that's inexpressible and full of glory. And one last point. It feels pretty good to finally be chosen. You know, some of us, we were never picked for anything. Kickball, nope. Recess, nope. Seventh grade basketball team, nope. Eighth grade basketball team, nope. Prom, nope. Homecoming, <laughs> nope. College applications, nope. And then God comes out of nowhere and he's like, I like you. I want you. I'm picking you. And we become chosen scattered pilgrims. Scattered throughout this world, picked by God, awaiting that future glory, that inheritance which can never be taken away from us. God, I'm just really thankful for how you, um, you're with us in this world that is not our home and that you've prepared a home that we've never seen and yet you've put a desire in our heart for that home. God, I pray we can not forget where our true home is and that even though we'll have some some various stopping points along the way. I pray we don't mistake those for our true home. I'm thankful, too, for how you take even the suffering in our lives and you use it to help us to see this world more clearly, help us to see you more clearly, and you help us to reveal Christ more clearly, and you use those to draw us closer to you. So, God, I, I, I pray for the person here who has never reached out and grabbed hold of that life preserver that you've thrown them, God. Um, I pray that they would reach for it. I pray that they would receive Christ, that they would not just sit there staring at this offer, but that they would, they would re receive the gift you're offering them. And I pray they would also experience that, that love, God, that joy inexpressible and full of glory. Amen. Thanks for listening. This has been a Dwell Community Church production.